1: Hello and welcome to the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined in this latest episode by the writer Alison Irvin. A graduate of the University of Glasgow's prestigious Creative Writing Masters course, Alison's debut novel, This Road is Red, garnered much praise from readers and critics alike and was shortlisted for the Saltire First Book of the Year Award. Alison also works collaboratively with photographer Chris Leslie and artist Mitch Miller as Ray Collective and their project Nothing is Lost, which recorded the impact of the 2014 Commonwealth Games on residents in Glasgow's East End won the Scottish Design Awards Grand Prix. Among their other projects, which combine photography, text and graphic art, is Barrowland Ballads, telling the untold stories of the iconic venue in Glasgow's Gallagate. Alison continues to work on her own projects as well, and her latest novel, Cat Step, will be published in November this year by Dead Ink Books. Alison, welcome to the Read All About It podcast.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: I should have said in the introduction as well that uh, your your very first published short story appeared in the Celtic view back in, in the dim and distant past.
2: Yep, absolutely. That still goes on my CV. I'm very proud of that.
1: I'm glad to hear that because it's it's uh, it's interesting. One of the things that we did at the time in the Celtic View magazine was every month we'd publish a, a short story from either established or, or up-and-coming writers. And it was it was uh, a great, obviously, a platform for, for writers, but I think also for readers as well, just to maybe discover new writing talent as well.
2: It was brilliant. It was Willie Mayley that put me in touch with you, but I can't even remember how Willie and I ended up talking about it in the first place. But um, I wrote the story, you accepted it, and I was... Oh yeah, I was delighted with it.
1: And that was you on your way from there to be a writer?
2: (laughs) Never looked back.
1: I've just mentioned briefly just some of the things that you, you do. And just before we started recording, you had mentioned that this experience of being at the other end of usually, you're the interviewer in terms of your projects, whether it's I say some of the collaborative projects or even your novels, sometimes they come out of, of a lot of interviews you do. So, this is a, a new experience for you being in, in the other end, on the receiving end, as it were.
2: It is, it is. I, I can't say I'm entirely comfortable yet, but um. <laughs> I'll try and relax. No, I, yeah, I spend most of my time interviewing people and asking you know, open questions and just having a good old chat. And then I record the interviews and then show them back to the people that I've interviewed and then take my writing from there. But I've got um, Chris Leslie, who I work with. He's trained me in not doing the mmm and ah when you're... <laughs> when you're interviewing people so I feel like I'm doing a lot of silent head nodding as I'm talking to you when I should actually be speaking and not not worrying about anything like that.
1: Do you know it's funny when when I started doing the podcast and it's only then you start to really listen back to yourself and you realise I I didn't realise I'd be kind of quirks of speech or as you say as and as or even the way you take a deep breath but that's the that's the beauty of the editing process it makes me sound a lot better than I really am. In terms of, you know, just that, that idea of uh, you interviewing people all the time and that kind of starts the basis of whatever project you're, you're working on, how did that come about, that idea or that type of writing where you, first of all, you want to get people's real stories, but then you maybe adapt them some into, into novels?
2: I think it it started out because I I was working under a very strict brief um, for the Red Road Flats project, which is how um, This Road is Red came about. And it was, the Red Road Flats project was a legacy project to record the stories and memories of folk who'd lived or worked in the flats from the 60s to when they were, when the project ended, which was about 2010. And they were inviting people of all art forms. So there was photographers, illustrators... There was all sorts of work being done. And so my job as a writer was just one of the artists that came in. So I, I sort of stuck within the brief, which was to interview, find people to interview, people who'd lived there right from the very beginning, people who'd worked there as concierges, people who'd recently arrived and interview them. I then had to present their stories in a way that was accurate and truthful. And I guess with, um, with This Road is Red, that was the first that kind of work that I did. And then I did fictionalise those stories, which I've not done since, apart from one very small project in um, Falkirk Town Centre. And I, I wonder if I would ever fictionalise people's stories again. I've I've always kept to creative non-fiction since. It's a, it's a kind of a, a way of working that I really enjoy because I'm quite nosy for a start. And I I like finding out about people's lives. I know there's a fine line when you're when you're writing about another person's life or stories, because me as the writer, I have the filter that is me that those stories come through. So there is a kind of there's an ethical and a, a moral line that I tread quite a lot. I'm always aware of that, of they're not my stories. So somehow or other, I try and work that all out and get the stories on the page.
1: And also, you know, whether it's the Red Road Flats or I mentioned also the Barrowland Ballroom. And these are iconic. Obviously, the Red Road Flats no longer exist. But those were iconic sort of monuments or parts of Glasgow that, but also they were there, but maybe were overlooked at times because of of where they were and and the areas that the other people that were were occupying them. So it was probably quite important as well, particularly with something like the Red Road to get, because they were such a part of the landscape.
2: And I think that was like all credit to um Glasgow Life actually for doing the legacy project in the first place. But they really were keen to get stories and memories down of a huge sort of sweeping scale as well. So it was it wasn't gonna be all kind of um rose tinted memories of oh, wasn't community life great on the, you know, twenty fifth floor. But nor was it these were, you know, kind of not very nice places to live full of crime, drugs. And of course people did tell me stories at both ends of the spectrum. But they also told me ordinary stuff of daily life that went on in between. So, yeah, it was important to record the whole width and breadth of, of life at the Red Road.
1: Yeah, and obviously in the back of that comes the, you know, the, I mentioned the, the fact that the novel or the Red, This Road of Dread was so well received as well, which again, when you're kind of starting off as a writer, that there must be a, an elation, but also a relief as well that you kind of know you're on the right track.
2: I was so lucky. I Yeah, it, it was, it was the first book, I'd written actually no that's a lie I did I still have one in my bottom drawer I have a a, a novel that um <laughs> that hasn't gone anywhere but it was the, it was my first published book and it was kind of easy to get it published because Johnny Howes, the, the the guy from Glasgow Life, who was a real, he was a great kind of project manager. He just let us get on with the the art, basically. And then he found a home for it. So he approached a few Scottish presses um, spoke with Lewis Press, who said, yep, we're up for that. We'll publish it. And so I didn't have any of the agonies of having to get an agent, having to then, you know, submit it to publishers. It just happened. And I think um. <laughs> Perhaps I was, you know, I thought, oh, it's easy, it's plain sailing from here. You know, experience has taught me otherwise since. But it was a brilliant first gig and um, I'm very, very fortunate.
1: Um, no doubt we'll, in the course of this podcast, we'll talk more about the writing. I obviously mentioned you've got a, a novel coming out in the not too distant future. But obviously in terms of the podcast and like many of the guests, you were really keen to get involved but then probably were cursing me while you were trying to pick out your different choices for books and if we start back at your your favourite book from childhood and the one that you've chosen is Black Beauty by Anna Sewell.
2: I think it was the first, I'd read a lot of Enid Blyton when I was a kid, I'd read Ballet Shoes by Noel Stretfield but then I remember reading this one and it felt like the first kind of, first bit of literature that I read. I really loved, it. I wasn't into horses or anything, but maybe that was part of the excitement of it. It was like a whole nother world. I remember I think I was in so the last year in primary school down in Essex, and we would get books out from the library, and the book before um, my teacher had kind of um you know raised his eyebrows out and it, I'd got it from the the wrong section of the library. It was this teenage section, so it was a slightly older book called and it was called "My Darling Villain. I can't even remember who wrote it, but I didn't know how to pronounce Killen, So I called it my darling Villain in my head. <laughs> and, um, and he was a bit like, mm, is that suitable for you, Alison? And then the next book I got out uh, was this one. And I got much more of an, an, an approving nod and a, mm, as if, oh, well, that's interesting. And I reread it because I knew I was going to be talking about it. And I can really see why I liked it, because it, it's gripping. It's there's lots of short chapters the, the adventures of this horse basically and then it, in, in sort of in a classic in terms of structure it starts out well, I don't want to give too much away but it, it goes through a classic structure where you know you're kind of hanging on for dear life hoping the horse is going to be all right and then it's a children's book so you can kind of guess the ending.
1: Well do you know what was interesting when that again when I was just reading up on the book ahead of doing the podcast it's quite in a way it's quite tragic she, that she that's the only novel that she wrote and she wrote it when when her health was failing and she died about five months after it was published and it became an instant success so she kind of got an inkling but apparently she originally wrote it she didn't originally target it at children it was obviously it's, it's written from it's the horse as the the narrator but in yes. a way she she wanted to highlight what were in fact she thought were kind of uh, levels of animal cruelty and how horses were being treated and it, and so it subsequently became a, a very popular kids book but also helped herald some changes in how animals and particular horses were treated at that time which which was quite interesting when I mean, you know as you say now everybody would just associate it as a classic kids book
2: Well that's I didn't know that actually and that's it's interesting because there's a lot of stuff on animal welfare in the book but then there's also stuff on um, human welfare as well because there's a section where the the cab drivers who have the horses to work as cabs in London talk about not wanting to work on a Sunday so they can get a rest so that so their horses can rest but like you know mankind shouldn't be flogged to death so there's a bit of that that that's come in i mean it is quite there's a bit of sort of class stuff going on and i reread a bit thinking "Mm, is this just is this going to be about a a servile horse and you know the the varying levels above the horse of there's a bit of that but it's also it's a real it's got a lot of humanity in it like it's, it's a it's a moral book and there's a message to people like firstly look after your horses but look after your people and one another so I was, I was quite glad I liked that as a kid
1: obviously if you, if you enjoy it as a child you have a different perspective and you're coming at it a different way but it's quite nice as you say if you've just read it or reread it and then A you can still enjoy it but then you, you can think back and say I can see why I loved that book you know it doesn't change your memory of it as a way and I'm
2: trying- what i then went on to read but i actually can't remember my memory isn't very good but i've I've always loved reading and i I think i think that was quite a sort of a like a bit of a pivotal time for me when i read that
1: and quite often with and particularly in this category when people the books they choose are quite often what would be considered now classic works of literature but i always find it extraordinary for example that black beauty sold about today about 50 million copies and I, I just think that's incredible. And the fact that, you know, probably children now could still read it and, and relate to it and, and enjoy it, which tells you why it is a classic, because it's timeless. And it, I mean, I think it was 1877 it was published. So, you know, that's, in, that's an incredible testament to that, that, her talent as a writer
2: good writing as well it's not it's not flowery it's it's direct it just tells the story and you know you could you could sort of go oh it's often like and another thing and another thing there's a lot of perhaps a lot of telling not showing as they they say but I think it's really good I think her writing's great
1: in terms of, and again, I've, this is a question I'm always, I've always asked, particularly people who've maybe now get kids of their own, of whether you've either encouraged your children to to read that book or, or put it in front of them and, and see what their reaction is, because obviously it's different generations as well. But then there's maybe a wee part of you that's reluctant in case they go, no, I I didn't like that, and you're thinking, but I loved it.
2: Yeah, I I have tried. I've tried with both my two younger daughters, eight and ten. And um, yeah, it, w- it wasn't quite the reaction I wanted, which is a shame. I they're into Warrior, there's a, a book series called Warrior Cats, one of them loves, and then another series called Podkin. And I, I don't know, maybe, I'm thinking off the top of my head now, but maybe they're, they're, there's such a bigger market for books specifically written for children nowadays that maybe the books that they're reading tap into something which this one doesn't quite, or maybe, yeah, they're just not interested in all
1: do you know, the other thing I always think as well, and it's kind of trying to remember back to your own childhood that, you know, once you, you learn to read and you get this instant love of books, and there comes a certain point where you want to discover your own books, as it were, your own writers, even at a young age, even if you couldn't articulate it when you were at primary school, there's something exciting about going to the library and, and getting books out that your parents haven't either recommended for you or got for you. And it's almost like that's you're on the road to discovery in terms of your own literary life, I suppose.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. My 10-year-old's been rereading the same books over and over, and me and her dad. We've been presenting other books to her saying, you want to try this one? You know, including Black Beauty, not interested. And then um, her 16-year-old sister gave her the Hunger Games trilogy and she picked it up last night and started to read it. And both me and Eddie said, have you seen what, what she's reading? And we were like, Yeah, we see. And and, and neither has mentioned it. We didn't comment. We just ignored the fact that she'd picked up a new book. And so she's now herself finding the Hunger Games out just for herself without her parents. Yeah. Interfering, basically. So,
1: yeah, (laughs) quite right. I mentioned it right at the start of because obviously this is just an audio podcast, but, you know, we're doing via video. So you were nodding as I was saying you were probably cursing me as I was making you boil down your choices. And how how difficult was it in any of the categories for you to, to even just pick one book? And and I know it's almost a rhetorical question because I know how difficult it is.
2: It was really hard. Yeah, I, I think I found particularly the, the kind of teenage formative years book really hard and also the book I would re- recommend to anyone. Uh, then I, I was having like an existential crisis about the book I'd recommend to anyone because <laughs> I love it. It's my favourite book or one of them. But then would everybody like it? So is that is that the suitable book that you'd give to everyone? So, yes, it was hard.
1: I I, I sort of half apologise for for putting you through those agonies. You mentioned then about, uh, again, going on to the next category, which is kind of teenage formative years. Again, an ongoing difficulty in having to choose one. But the book that you chose in that category was The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood.
2: I guess I should say like this was really hard because the kind of the very close second and third books were The Grapes of Wrath and Tess of the D'Urbervilles. For varying reasons, they were, were really tight. Ty- like I read them at a timely point in my life. So I'm going to talk about <laughs> talk about them now, not The Handmaid's Tale.
1: Well, it's interesting, you know, even The Grapes of Wrath is one of my favourite books. And it's also one of the, f- the few books that when I got to the end, it actually the ending, and every time I've read it, it moves me to tears. You can have so many different emotions, but for a book to actually make you cry at the end, I think it's the most extraordinary. I mean, I think he's an extraordinary writer, but that book I absolutely love.
2: The reason I came about reading it was because I was doing GCSE, so I was about 15 or 16, and my history teacher, we were doing the history of the American West, and all credit to her, she went, so we were doing this classroom work, and then she said a great book to read is The Grapes of Ruth my family didn't have many books but um, my dad's a reader but he didn't have many on his bookshelf yet I came home and I saw that he had that book on his shelf so I just picked it up read it was absolutely blown away and then read it again in adulthood and and I think I got more out of it but um, yeah it was just to sort of read that and then in conjunction with studying that the history of um, America was yeah it was great.
1: And and then the other one you mentioned before we got into your choice was with Tess, because it's quite interesting. It's almost like a, a chart countdown. So <laughs> before we find out why The Handmaid's Tale pipped the other two, what, what was it about Tess or the Durbervilles?
2: I was doing a levels at this time and I, I just remember getting, I've never been so absorbed in a book and don't think I studied it. But I just picked it up and decided to read it. And the, the kind of the pictures in my head and the storytelling and the, the sadness and the passion, I absolutely loved it.
1: On the back of one of the early podcasts, uh, one of the guests, Alison McConnell, she had, I'm not sure if it was this one, or it was Far From the Madden Crowd that she'd, she'd recommended. I'd never read any Thomas Hardy, so I read Far From the Madding Crowd and I was, I found it quite tough to get through. I didn't enjoy it as maybe as much as maybe Alison thought I would, but you know, I've never read Tess of the Dubberville, so maybe maybe that's the next one to to tackle.
2: Books at the time, I, I love reading them, and then I often, because my memory's a bit rubbish I, I kind of forget the ins and outs and the nitty-gritty of books but some of the pictures and the, the mental images that i have like there's, there's a couple of bits of tessa the d'Urberville, one when they're she's standing on a threshing machine and they're harvesting that stands out and it must have, it was so vividly and beautifully described and then another scene at stonehenge which for those of you, people who've read the book will go oh yeah obvious but yeah but you'll you'll read it and you'll feel the same and I think it's just these pictures that I, so I've, I've taken those images with me from the book and they'll they've, they've stayed with me
1: so what was it about the handmaid's tale that just elevated it just above those two is the is the one you've chosen in this category
2: Maybe it, maybe it reminds me of my sister as well. We did a lot of reading. She's, she's a couple of years older than me. And I remember going into a, a local bookshop and saying, it's my sister's birthday. Could you recommend a book? And this was the book that the woman in the bookshop recommended. And I, I looked at when it came out. It was 1986. And so I, I probably maybe bought this for her in about 1990, 1991. I think it, it just, it, it set off a kind of, or, or it showed me that, oh, it sounds really obvious, but that women can write books. I studied a lot of literature at school and it was either dead people or old older white men and I and here's here's a woman who wrote this amazing disturbing and and frightening yet fascinating novel and then that set off another kind of a, a kind of bit of a reading exploration and then I went on and read Woman on the Edge of Time by Marge Piercy and then I read some Angela Carter and Toni Morrison and and then I, I was quite sort of politically active at that age and I was fem- still am a feminist, was a feminist. So I was finding out all this stuff about women in the world and politics and sexism. And it, it came to me at a really good time in my life. And it's really well written.
1: You obviously, you know, you mentioned you you bought the book for your, your sister. Did you let her read it first? And then <clears throat> did she then say to you, you need to read it? Or were you just desperate for her to, to finish it so you, you could devour it as well?
2: she read it first and then yeah she said you should read this and then I went on and read some other Margaret Atwoods and but we we had a nice kind of thinking about it I'd forgotten that we shared that love of books as teenagers it was a a kind of a bonding thing we're very different me and my sister but we share a love of books and then it made me think we we used to like Maeve Finchie as well and we we read all the all the Maeve like Light a Penny Candle and Circle of Friends and we, we even went to hear a talk which I don't think I, I then don't I think it was another like 10-15 years before I went to hear another writer talk and um, and we sat together and, and she her one piece of advice for writers was something like um never hang up when you get across line on the telephone just listen in <laughs> I've never forgotten that and I guess that's how I've always approached my writing and life as well just listen in so yeah so it's nice it, it yeah it reminds me of my sister
1: I also think as well, it's, for me, it, the more you can read in the, in the wider that you can, different types of genre, different types of writers. As a reader, never mind as a writer, I think that's always a good thing because there's obviously some that will stand out and I'll, you'll remember. But I just think it's good you not know, to limit yourself to one particular kind of genre or one author. You know, you just want to, especially at that age, to just be reading everything and anything.
2: I wasn't too, if that's the right, word, discerning. I just, I did read I read what was plonked in front of me and, and liked it. And I think maybe that's why we might come to it later. But that's why I really struggled with the book that you, I wouldn't read again for love nor money, just because I do. I think there's a there's merit in in everything.
1: In terms of the Handmaid's Tale, because one of the, again it's been chosen in a few occasions over the course of the podcast, either in this category or as, as a book that people would recommend to anyone. One of the things it still always strikes me as quite extraordinary. Either you read Margaret Atwood interviews or you hear her talking, and she says in that book everything that's in the Handmaid's Tale had either had already been done, was being done at the time, or the authorities were were trying to do, which is extraordinary but frightening as well. And I, I think if ever a book is you know resonates with today's world particularly you know in somewhere like the united states sadly and frighteningly it is probably the handmaid's tale
2: yeah and that was written well however many years ago yeah i agree there's a kind of a you sort of almost don't want to read it but you do as well because there's there's a fear in it of how life could go or what could happen quite easily and quite suddenly i think I like the adaptation of it as well. It feels personal because I'm watching it as a woman thinking, "Geez, oh, yeah as you said if 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 I didn't know that everything in that book had already happened, but you look at the world around us and it's it's a bit scary I
1: mean did you approach the you know, watching the TV series with any trepidation, given the fact of how much you, you love the book. I mean, I'm actually, re- I'm actually wearing a T-shirt that says the book was better, so, <laughs> coincidentally, but, you know, that way you always, you have such an investment in a book, and if if somebody turns it into a TV series or a film, you know, it's almost like taking ownership of something that's really personal to you.
2: I did wonder what, how they would do it. I really liked it. I thought they did it really well. And, and I like the way it's kind of spun off as well. I'm, I mean, it's horrific. The second series, it's, it is brutal and horrific. And there were times when I thought, I actually, this is not entertainment. Like for me, this is, you know, hiding behind the pillow. But I think that's what I was trying to get at earlier in that it's horrific, but I can't not watch it because you never know. It's like dot, dot, dot. And she's still quite heavily involved, I think, in the production of, of the series. Uh, Margaret Atwood is. I think she's an executive producer. So I guess she's got a hand in ensuring that they're kind of realistic enough and not just ridiculous.
1: Because one of the other things, uh, again, which I've asked everybody who's chosen this book in relation to the sequel, uh, The Testaments, which it just came out in paperback. I think it was just from when we were recording. It was just last week. I think there was 600 books came out in the same day of which that was one of them. How did you find, have you have you read the sequel and how, again, was it the same idea of your you're really hoping that you, you would love it in the same way that you love The Handmaid's Tale?
2: Yeah, I did. I did read it. And I don't think I did love it as much as I love The Handmaid's Tale, actually. And I don't know whether that's because I'd seen the TV series in between. So I would then had a load of other ideas put into my head already. I thought it was, oh, I love the ending. I love bits of it. But it didn't, yeah, it didn't do as much for me as the first time around. I, I kind of read it in the, the Booker context, and I need to read Girl, Woman, Other, because I'd, I'd like to see, because they were joint winners, weren't they? And I'd, I'd like to see how it compares with Girl, Woman, Other.
1: Because it was interesting when, that, when they, had, they announced the joint winners, and the, I think the controversy surrounding it was the kind of feeling, and even particularly with some of the other nominees who didn't win, that Margaret Atwood was given that award in terms of, because of her body of work over many years, which is out with the kind of parameters of the the competition. It should just be specifically about that book published in that year. But I'm, I'm from her point of view, it must have been a wee bit. There must have been slight trepidation, given how much The Handmaid's Tale meant to so many people. To then revisit it, knowing that it's hard to live up to those expectations.
2: It's brave, isn't it, revisiting characters and, and a book. Yeah, funnily the the book that I was I've picked for the one that I'd recommend to anyone is a revisitation of a previous book and previous characters. I think I remember um, I listened to a podcast you did with Karen Campbell and and she she was adamant that no, she's not going to revisit characters. They're there. You send them off into the world. You you end the story where it ends and then that's it. Let the reader get on with it. But I, I'm actually really glad that. Um, Marilyn Robinson actually who wrote um, Home I'm glad she did revisit the characters because I love them
1: Well you are listening to the Read All About It podcast with me Paul Cuddy and my guest Alison Irvin and we are on to the third book choice which you've already mentioned Alison and that's the book you'd recommend to anyone and that is Home by Marlon Robinson
2: I think it might be one of, well, it is one of my favourite ever books. I think you need to, the, the kind of disclaimer, if you like, is you need to read Gilead first. But this book, Home, moved me and, and resonated with me much more. I, I think it's an absolute masterclass in fiction writing. It's intimate, it's tender, it's subtle, it's profoundly moving. The the dialogue reveals character and action it's all very understated. It's kind of what's going on under the surface, as as opposed to, you know, bam, bam, plot, plot, you know, action. And it's the relationship between a brother and a sister and their father. And then also it sort of expands out into the wider family a, a little. Oh, but I, I I love it.
1: I mean, had you read, you mentioned the fact that she had written about Gilead, which is almost a kind of nice, almost a link with, in terms of The Handmaid's Tale, you know, in, in terms of that, that name. But had you read that first? And is that what brought you then to to read Home?
2: It is, yep. And so I kind of read Home with Gilead in mind because um, the character Jack is mentioned in Gilead, but he it's this book is all really all about him and his sister Glory. Whenever you read anything, you read it with your own circumstances in mind. Um, so you know a, a lot of the themes in here of est- estrangement from a sibling really resonated with me. But I think. I was trying to think, would other people like it so much who maybe didn't have the same family circumstances? And I think they would. I think it's a very powerful, moving, beautiful story of the relationship between siblings and their father.
1: In terms of obviously this is a book that you would recommend to anyone and you'd already alluded to the fact that this was a really tough category for you to choose but again and it's something I've I've often asked people when you are recommending it to someone how, how do you respond depend do you respond in certain ways depending on the reaction i.e I, are you slightly disappointed if they come back to you and they don't love it in the same way that you do yeah
2: yeah I think so to be honest. <laughs> I think maybe the criticisms that some people might have you know they might say oh this is a bit it's a bit slow but I think there's no harm in slowing down I need to slow down sometimes and read and and just just really immerse yourself in a book you do need a dictionary by your side as well like I've I've, I've had to look up a few words but then that's if you're in that mindset that's no bad thing either you know it's, it's no harm to look up a word in a dictionary every now and again so yeah I, th- I, but I, I think I would understand if people didn't like it it's not particularly pacey yeah it's brilliantly structured again again sort of going back a, I think it's a masterclass in 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 novel writing and the, the conclusion or the ending is I I'm not very good at similes but I just described it as like the kind of the moving of the sea it just takes you it just takes you along with it in like some massive massive huge wave and um and then you just you're all overcome well I was all overcome anyway
1: I mean is that, is that a book that you've read and then revisited then I take it
2: yeah I read it And then when I knew I was going to be talking to you, I I reread it and um, it had an equal and if not more profound effect on me. And I sort of reading it to learn from it as well. This is a bit of an aside, but there was a time when I didn't really do much reading. When when kids were really young, I would pick up a book and fall asleep. I was so tired. You know, generally you read at the end of the night when you're in bed Well, I'd manage a paragraph. And and, and then also when, when my kids were young and I had deadlines and books to write, any any free time I had was generally about, right, I've got to get these words on the page. I've got to finish this book or finish that piece. So to, to sit down and, and and give yourself permission to read is it was a real luxury. And I didn't have the time a good few years ago, but I do now. And it's lovely. And, and it's also essential for a writer to just to read as much as you can. And I'm, that's finally drumming into my head. It's OK. You're allowed.
1: Also, I think I think what you're saying there will, will resonate with a lot of people who are listening. Who are at, at various points, particularly if you know if you've got a young family or, or those kind of demands on not just your time but your energy. But I suppose the, th- the thing remember is not to feel guilty if you're not reading a view, especially if you're a reader of your writing. You think I should be reading, but actually there's times when you know maybe you can't or maybe just there's other things that are a priority. That's fine as well.
2: It's what you what you were going back to. Whatever you read is fine. If you're if you don't have the headspace or the concentration, it doesn't matter. Just read something short or read something fluffy or, or listen to a book. I, I, I don't do it very much myself, but a lot of people listen to audio books and they find that much, much easier because they can do the washing up at the same time or something like that. So. There was a, a big kind of divide during lockdown, wasn't there, with people who, who were able to read and those who weren't. And then the same with people who were able to write and those who weren't. And I think every, everything is valid.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. and everybody's, Everybody will, will react differently to things. Interesting, you just mentioned there, which was one of the things I was going to ask, because you said obviously the book might not be for everyone or you might need a dictionary uh, that's maybe a sign of our age that we would still look up words in dictionaries as opposed to just Google them. But which I like, that's kind of old school. But I think sometimes with certain books as well, you just mentioned that you have to sometimes be either in the mood or like it will depend on your mood, what's happening, whether you know you're tired or whatever. Sometimes you just want something that you can just race through. But other times, as you say, you want to spend a bit of time and really immerse yourself in in a book. And if you any book, I suppose if you get it at the right time, you're more likely to engage with it
2: absolutely and there's there's no harm in putting a book down and and coming back to it or i sometimes read a real big tome of a book which takes me takes me forever and then i will need to read a quick book that i can whiz through that i either because it's easier or because it's shorter
1: i mentioned in the introduction in terms of your own writing and you've got a, a new novel coming out. I think they're taking pre-orders for it just now. It's Dead Ink Books, so if you go onto their website, I think they're taking pre-orders for Catstep, and that's coming out in November. And what's the feelings ahead of publication? Is it just the excitement, the thrill? Is there still that kind of nervousness because you've obviously invested everything into the book? But it's it's only when it gets out into the wider wider world that you kind of get that reaction.
2: I, I'm a I'm a nightmare to live with at the moment, if I'm honest. <laughs> it's a kind of a limbo land because it's done and so the advanced reader copies are out and I think I get one more check of that just to do uh, you know check for typos and things like that but it's essentially done but nothing's happening and so yeah you can pre-order it and it's it's just going out to advanced readers to maybe get some endorsements for the cover and things like that so hopefully exciting things are about to happen i'm yeah I'm definitely nervous about how it's going to how it's going to go down, but at the same time, I'm trying to write another book and almost put this one away for now because I know that come November time I'll be mightily distracted, so just trying to get as as much done for the next one as possible
1: and obviously everybody in your family is going to be getting a copy of it for Christmas
2: honey, I said to my brother i said um uh, just something like you know i really I really need everyone to please do a big push you because know, because there's so many books out at the moment and, and he was like don't worry Alison I'll get the sandwich board out hopefully they'll be buying it for their friends as well.
1: Kirsten Innes who's brought out Scabby Queen that came out in the summer and it's garnered lots of praise it's a really brilliant book and I was talking to her on the podcast about how and I mentioned it already the fact that at the beginning of September there was something like 600 books come out in the same day and in, in some respects maybe the fact of your book there's a wee bit of breathing space between that and then your book coming out in November is, is a good thing because I feel within that, there must be so many great books that might be lost because all the big noise will maybe be about some of the bigger names and the celebrities, but there'll be some great novels. So maybe, so maybe actually the timing might actually be better for you.
2: I've hoped that as well. It is so funny because you have to, obviously the the ego in you wants your book to do well and to get well received and even get reviewed in the first place because if there's 600 books coming out they're not all going to get reviewed but then the other bit of me is very aware that it could come out and just make a little splash and then never be seen again because that's life and that happens and that happens to all all kinds of books so that hopefully the the kind of the hook of the subject matter will make people curious because it sort of starts off with a woman who leaves her daughter in the car sleeping because she's not well and she nips into the co-op and gets some paracetamol she kind of makes the choice to leave her daughter in the car and then the car gets broken into while she's in the shop and then everything just goes to hell in a handcart after that and then it takes lots of different directions but maybe maybe if it's a strong enough hook it might make people pick it up.
1: I mean I suppose do you think as well the fact that you've you've had experience in terms of the publishing world and you know as you as you mentioned that your first book came out there was a kind of relatively smooth the, the path to publication but you've subsequently obviously over over time you, you realize that actually that's not always the case does that help you with this book coming out that you there's a kind of sense of as you say because it's very hard sometimes to pick some books suddenly explode onto the scene and you don't know why you always hope that that's going to happen to your book and there's no reason to suggest why that wouldn't be the case but there's a sense of kind of realism as to not get your expectations too far you know ahead of yourself
2: i've sort of always described it as the long game in a way i mean i knew I, this road is red came out and then i i, I sort of was writing it when i'd had I've got three kids, one of whom I inherited, so she was always around. But I had my first biological child when I was in the middle of writing This Road is Red. And then I had my second biological child very soon after. So I went from writing loads to then absolutely having no time, thinking, right, well, I either do this, I either write or I don't. But I have to understand that I'm not going to be, you know, researching 24 hours a day and writing much anytime soon. So I've always kind of had just keep going, just that sort of maybe a bit of determination, don't give up, but it's not going to it's not going to happen straight away. And it's it's nearly 10 years from the first from This Road Is Red. I mean, I've done some great other stuff along the way with the guys in Recollective, but from the first novel to the second novel, it's nearly 10 years. And who knows <laughs> when the next novel might be out. So I'm I'm plugging away, basically.
1: Because the other thing as well is that, you know, the very fact, even before the book comes out, I think not only just how many books are published, but how many books are written and submitted to agents and publishers. So to, to, to get to that step of getting the book published is first, is the first achievement. And, and then after that, once it's out in the world, it's kind of at the mercy of, of readers and, and you just never know where it's going to end up.
2: No, you don't. And Touchwood, it it might do well. But if not, I, I feel luckier now because I've got an agent and she's saying to me, when, when the next one's ready, do send it. But she's even saying, you can send me a synopsis if you want, or you can send me a first chapter. That's lovely to have that. That gives me the complete heebie-jeebies because I think there's no way I could send her anything until I felt it was at least half decent. But to have that is confidence. It's a lonely old business writing, and and it is to have someone that's on your team. And for a long while, you don't have anyone on your team at all. And that's why where you need that mixture of you do need an ego, but you also need grit and determination and and um, patience as well, I guess.
1: Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed for you when when the book does come out, and uh, obviously we've just spoiled Christmas for all your friends and family because they now know what they're getting from you. <laughs> we're on to the fourth question in the in the podcast, and this is one I think of of all the ones that you've you found tough. It's the book that you could not be paid to read again. You already mentioned earlier on, and when you were. We were corresponding before this. You basically said you couldn't. You couldn't think of one, and and it was hard for you to actually pin down one particular book. What what were the reasons that you found that so difficult?
2: I know it's a mass. I'm massively sitting on the fence. I know I am, but I I found it difficult because I think there's merit in everything that I've read, or maybe it comes from that to get a book written and then through all the kind of various channels of publication, from editing to proofreading to to publishing. There's a lot of work goes in in it. And so I think I just didn't want to. Yeah, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. (laughs) I think structure is really important. I proofread and copy edit a a fair few books. And some of them are my cup of tea. Some necessarily aren't. But all of them, I think, have a have a structure to them. And it's thought out that, you know, there's thought and there's craft behind what people are doing. So I didn't want to diss anybody's craft, basically.
1: You mentioned at the very start how, you know, you and I were first put in contact from Willie Maley, who lectures up at the University of Glasgow. I and mean, he did the podcast before he did it. His wife had said to him for that category, just pick somebody who's dead. And then that way, you're not going to offend them.
2: Do you know, because I, I listened to his podcast and I heard that and I could tell that he'd struggled with the question. And I mentioned Karen Campbell earlier. I knew she'd struggled with that question as well. And I was thinking, who's dead? Um, I I really tried, but I can't, no, I can't do it.
1: Do you know, I think, uh, and it's interesting over the piece when I've been doing the podcast, and particularly I think writers, because probably more than anyone knows, a a writer will know how much is invested in the book in terms of from that moment you get that spark of inspiration. But it's, it's a lot of perspiration. There's a lot of hard work that goes into it. And so much of yourself is invested into it to get published. And so therefore, you wouldn't like to be tuning in to a podcast where somebody picks your book in this category. And I suppose that's the same thing. You wouldn't want somebody to be thinking, even if you don't personally like it, someone else will. And the fact that it's been published is, validates it in itself.
2: Yeah, you wouldn't. You'd be mortified, wouldn't you, if somebody said, yeah, yours is the book they wouldn't be paid to read again. I mean, there's, there's definitely books I've, I've taken me a long while to read, and I've struggled reading. But I, like, I would if someone paid me, I'd read.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's very honest. Because the other thing I was, again, on the back of this category, I always ask. I'm curious to, to find out what kind of reader you are, because I, I struggle with that category because books that I don't enjoy, I tend to put down. I'll, I'll usually give a book two or three times or revisit it. Eventually, if it's not working for me, I'll put it aside. But it never leaves that, because I haven't struggled through and finished it, there's very few books that leave that lasting negative impression because I'll just then go and find something that I enjoy. Or are you one of those people who read? you know, once you start the book, do you, do you finish it?
2: I've got to finish it. Yeah, got to finish it. And I know life's too short. I know, yeah, there's 600 books coming out in September, <laughs> This, is, for God's sake. But uh, yeah, I have to finish it. I'm a trier.
1: <laughs> do you feel, I mean, are there times when you haven't been able to finish a book and you feel guilty about it then?
2: No, I don't think I've ever... Have I ever not finished a book? I always think I'll pick them. I'm reading um The Odyssey. Or that's like one of my books to read, you know, just to dip into. And I guess I haven't read it for a while. I mean, I should have read it years ago, to be, to be honest, but I haven't. And, and I'm now making amends. And it's been, I'd say it's been a good couple of months, but it's by my bedside and I know I'll finish it. That's but,
1: impressive. Because I, you know, I was saying it to earlier El- 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 on, I'd only just recently read Thomas Hardy for the first time. And I think one of the things I've enjoyed about the podcast is it, it gives me loads of recommendations of books to read. But at the same time, it does highlight everybody's own i'm not, not sure if reading limitations but your own it's impossible to read everything and some people have read more of a certain type of genre something maybe more that would be considered classics or not but it goes back to what you were saying earlier on of just just read everything or anything and at some point you'll get to you might get to some books that you might want to read some you might never get to
2: there are certainly gaps in my in my sort of reading that i i i want to sort of set right now um but yeah you you can't read everything a teacher once said to me, you should definitely read the Bible and a um, book of Greek mythology because then that will set you up for reading any literature that you read henceforth, you know, all the references and things. I don't think I've even done that. So I, mm-hmm. that's why yeah, the ripe old age of my mid 40s, I'm doing
1: it. As you say, the very fact that when you start a book, you're going to finish it. it was that's a, that's a good sign anyway, because not all of us, not all of us can say that. We now go to the final question in the podcast, and that's either the last book you read or the book you're currently reading. And the book in this one is And the Land Lay Still by James Robertson.
2: This is a book that I'd always seen and thought I really want to read this and and hadn't for a while. So it's not technically the last book because the last book was home because I reread it and Black Beauty. But anyway, obviously I'm not from Glasgow, but I moved to Glasgow in 2005 and moved to, to study creative writing at Glasgow Uni. And so immediately when I, I got there, you know, I was told, read Lanark. So I read Lanark and then I read some Edwin Morgan and Muriel Spark. And, and, um, and then this book, sort of 15 years on, you know, I, I saw that it was a, a kind of a, an epic story of Scotland or a certain part of Scotland starts from the 1950s to ends in about 2010. I thought, I'm going to have a go at that. And it was likened to Lanark as well. So I thought, right, yeah, yeah, I'm interested. And um, I really loved it because I, I, I had no idea what it was going to be about. That was the thing. I, I just I liked the, the title grabbed me, actually, which is an Edwin Morgan quote. So I like the kind of the, the poetry of the title. And then it's about um, a photographer's son or two photographers. And then because I've worked with Chris and Mitch in the, the collective, I kind of, you know, see a lot of the work that Chris Leslie does. And so that reminded me of some of these characters. And then it's a kind of a it's been described as a, a story of a nation. It touches on the political and the personal, there's we personal stories like human relationships. But then he also, James Robertson, takes on the kind of Scottish independence. He takes on the effects of war on a human and on a on a nation. And it just I, I really liked it. And I'm kind of in awe, to be honest.
1: It kind of touches, that book kind of touches on some of the things that we've been discussing because that's a book that I, I have to go back to because I, I tried reading it and it was one of those ones that, again, it had, I think partly because it garnered such praise and, and you, you know, it seemed to be everybody that read it, it was one of those kind of must-read books and I kind of started off and I, I quite enjoyed it at first but then I kind of get bogged down in and, and I'm as I say, I, I, if I'm not enjoying the book, I, I tend to just put it down so I, I haven't gone back to revisit it. So a couple of people again have mentioned it, so I think it's something that I'd I'd have to go back. I usually, as I say, I'll give the book two or three chances, but I didn't it didn't captivate me the first time I tried reading it.
2: Well, I wonder whether I don't because there's a section that starts with a certain set of characters, and then then there's a, the next section. It's a whole other set, and so you, it's one of those books where you have to leave people behind, and you're you've invested in them, and then you're like, oh now right, I've got to concentrate on some other people now, and it's only towards the end where all those ends are tied and right. some sort of sense is made but um one of the things I, I kind of didn't want to lose the characters at first so i could see why that would be that might put a reader off to kind of have to start anew with a fresh set of characters
1: i think sometimes you know that like, you know we mentioned earlier on i think we we're talking about home and how sometimes maybe you have to be in the right mood or I think I just remember at the time almost just getting bogged down. You know, sometimes you kind of feel you're reading the words, but you're not really, you're no longer engaged in it. So that's why I kind of put it to the, to the side. Sometimes there are books where you think I really should go back and, and have another go at that. So so maybe you've kind of, you've kind of spurred me on. Yeah, I
2: hope so. I, 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 yeah, I really like it. And, it. and it does, it takes a bizarre turn as well, which I kind of quite like as well, where one of the characters ends up having a kind of a hallucination and a bit of a dialogue with people in his life so we turn we go from prose to almost like a play script um where, where you just got characters and then what they're speaking so it's it's quirky as well it gets it gets a bit quirky
1: because i love lanark for example you mentioned that i mean i think that's a wonderful book so maybe i'll keep that in mind when i when i go back to it
2: yeah that helped me actually because at first i might when this particular bit came up i might have been a bit like oh hello <laughs> what's going on here but then i had lanark in the back of my head and I thought, oh, okay, yeah, calm down. <laughs> He's just being experimental and it, it works.
1: In terms of, obviously, I ask you the kind of reader you are, and you always, like you said, you always like to finish a book as well. Do you always have, is there always a pile of books that you're you're waiting to read or do you, or do you kind of discover each thing on you or do you kind of know what you're going to be reading next?
2: I'm a bit of both I think I've got some uh, the dead ink the publisher have sent me copies of the two other books that are coming out this year so I'm looking forward to reading them and then I've got a an Anne Enright that I know I want to read and then I know I want to read Andrew Hagen Mayfly so I yeah I've got a big list and then I've got to finish the Odyssey so yeah definitely I, I definitely know what's coming up next
1: never ends really for readers
2: no no it doesn't it doesn't and no, and there's, there's Dickens as well. Like, I've, I've, like you're saying with Hardy, I have got to the point where I, th- I thought, oh, I don't think I've read enough Charles Dickens. So I know I read Great Expectations and now I need to read some more. So it doesn't end. And that, that's that thing about if, if, it's, if, you're, if you're lucky enough that it's your job, then you actually do need to sit down and read because that, that informs your writing. But that, was, that took a long while for me to get my head around that being OK to do.
1: In terms of uh, the writing, you, you obviously you've you got the novel coming out in November, but you, you mentioned that you're already working on something else. Is that another novel? Is it, again, is that just something that you you wanted to just continue because you're in that kind of flow of creative writing and, and back in the novel writing? And it might not take the 10 years between the, the first two to the next one then?
2: I hope not. I was lucky enough, I got some Creative Scotland funding at the beginning of this year to write another novel. And I think if I hadn't had, because that was before COVID happened. So if I hadn't had that, Goodness knows, but I, I know I've got that I had that from January to January, and then when the kids were off school, my husband was working on his computer in our bedroom, I would take about an hour each day and just tell the girls I was going to my secret place, which was the car outside the house and I would take my laptop, which has got a crap battery and um it runs out after about an hour to an hour and a half, and I would just sort of bash out try and do a thousand words so I was trying to do that through lockdown a thousand rubbish words didn't matter what they were like but they were the beginnings of something and now that the kids have gone back to school I'm kind of looking at it in horror going right let's see what I can do with this and trying to to shape it so yeah it will be another novel of sorts I hope.
1: And I suppose part of the the writing process, and again, M- MD who's a writer, will know this, is that the important thing is to get the words down because then you can always, you can only edit what's already and, and shape it in a novel what's already there. If it's still just in your head, there's nothing you can do with it.
2: G- getting the words down, I think, is the easy part. But I think then the, the restructuring and the editing and the, the thinking that you then have to do around those words is the really tricky bit. But that's, yeah, but that is, that's the only way you can do it. I know some writers, I think it was I read a quote about Iris Murdoch. She used to not write the next sentence until the sentence previous was perfect or, you know, she had it how she wanted. And some writers do write like that, but I I can't. I have to do a big splurge and then edit.
1: I would imagine that would have taken forever to to write a book then if you were just looking for perfection with every sentence.
2: I I certainly couldn't couldn't do that. And I, I think I really enjoy, although I get, I have good days and bad days, but I really enjoy editing, so that's that's what I'm sort of grappling with at the moment.
0: Especially
1: when you see, you know, say if you know your novels come out in November, you've you've had to go through that whole editing process, and when you're at the other end of that, and you see what the finished product is, that that, that I suppose that's part of the enjoyment as well, because you know there is a there is something at the end of of all that effort.
2: I I think um I actually did a talk again one of these sort of webinar things that James Robertson was giving, and he was talking it was about the redrafting process basically you can redraft and redraft and redraft and you you have to keep doing it but uh, but there will come a point where that's it you have to say right I'm just shifting commas around here but I think to get to that point where you're shifting commas around can take a lot. And I think my advice to myself, actually, with this next book is to maybe even step back from the book for a couple of months and then do a final edit, because you, you don't want to rush it. I did it in the copy editing stage of Catstep when it had gone to the publisher. I, I did a lot of um, editing and rewriting, which perhaps I should have done before it had even got to that stage. But then, yeah, then you have to stop.
1: Well, as I say, we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed when Catstep comes out that it is the, the Christmas bestseller. And the podcast will just ride on on your coattails.
2: Yeah, that would be nice.
1: But sadly, uh, Alison, we've come to the end of the podcast. If anybody wants to check out Alison's book choices, then just go to my website www.paulcuddehy.com where each guest has their own individual page and I just list the book choices for each of the categories. Alison, it's been a real uh, joy talking to you. Who would have thought back all those years ago when we published your first short story in the Celtic U would be sitting chatting about books on a podcast?
2: I know, I know. Think of that initial email I'll have sent to you. Dear Paul, please would you consider my story? (laughs) And then here you go. So thank you.
1: Yeah, but it's been really, I've really enjoyed uh, talking to you about books. So thanks for being on the podcast.
2: Pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast. And I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at Podcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.